Please be seated. We are in a study of 2 Peter chapter 1. If you have a Bible and you'd like to turn there with me, we have considered... As usual, reading together from verse 1 down to verse 11. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have, uh, have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust but also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith, virtue, to virtue, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, as we come to your word, we pray that your spirit would again lead us into all truth. Lord, do not leave us to our own imagination. Do not leave us to a set of principles that will be nothing more than that which suits our own carnal reasoning. But, O oh Lord, lead us into your truth, the truth of love. And I pray for that vigor and health and strength of love to increase. Give us again, we pray, this blessing to find in your word the encouragement and the nourishment of the scriptures which you have inspired for your people. Grant that we might hear them, read and mark, learn and inwardly digest them, be comforted by your promises, embracing your hope of eternal life and rejoicing in Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whom we pray. Amen. For the last several years, one of the oldest and most esteemed art galleries in the United States was selling several newly rediscovered pieces of artwork from some of the world's most celebrated modern painters. Uh, art dealer Glafira Rosales explained how a family member had inherited a very impressive collection from his father who had held them anonymously. 
And now these priceless works of art were being sold one at a time for, well, for millions of dollars on the world market. And there was just one problem. They were all fakes. Instead of being painted by Jackson Pollock or Wilhelm de Kooning, the paintings were being made by some man in his New York garage. Rosales landed in jail and was ordered to pay $81 million to the victims who bought her fakes. Forgeries and counterfeits are all around us. We find them not only in the world of art and antiques, but even and especially in the world of religion, such as in the cheap, modern imitation of love. Modern people, it seems, talk about love incessantly, but it's clear that they mean something very different by that word. You keep using that word. There's a sign in my neighborhood, for instance, that says profoundly, love is love. Meaning, of course, that any definition or practice of love should be warmly affirmed and equally valid, no matter what it is. Such signs make it perfectly clear that love has been totally emptied of all meaning and weight, glory and beauty, and replaced by something unknown or at least unrecognizable. Obviously, loved is very different from the, whatever passing fancy that is striking the modern world, which it often mistakes for the real thing. True love, for instance, involves attachment and self-denial and many such things that moderns are very quick to discard. Modern love, in fact, seems to be suspiciously self-oriented. It seems to be self-love in so many ways. And whenever someone thinks of himself more than he ought, he will surely love others less than he ought. Love seems now to be a universal term for nothing in particular, which makes having conversations about it particularly difficult. However, since love is of God, the apostle says, we must then go to God to ask him what it actually means. How would you define the word love? Hmm? And what is love to look like? And what does it mean to give all diligence to grow in love? These are the things that will form our study today. I would like to begin with a definition. Let's begin with a definition. In the classic Beatles song, all you need is love. The word is repeated 39 times, though not once are we told what love is, how typical of the modern world. But in the Bible, God not only tells us what it is, but also what it does. John, for instance, has a great deal to teach us in his first letter, as I mentioned earlier, where he wrote, God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God sent his only begotten son into the world, that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We could very, very profitably start there. For here is the blazing fire at which the flame of our own love must be kindled. And the more that we appreciate that love is an element of God's character, and that we have received love chiefly at Calvary, a self-denying, self-giving love that unites us to God. 
the greater we'll become than our own God, love for God and others, as John goes on immediately to say, that God is love and he who abides in God uh, and God in him uh, abides in love. And beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another and so forth. The Bible thus holds before us a distinctively Christian love, that is, of the essence of God's character or nature, a love that is, as we experience it, merely the overflow of God's love that has been revealed in Christ and shed abroad in our hearts. Love is of God. There is no love that has not come from Him, and so from Him we must receive if we are to have And as one dictionary also put it, Christian love is never simply, in the Bible, a self-attained virtue. It is the result of a transformed life filled with the Spirit of God, which pours God's own love into the human heart. All right. Well, my uh, first shot across the bow to explain to you what it is and what it does But you'll be wondering now, I, I, I think I heard somewhere, aren't there some special Greek words for love? Well, as I've explained before, be, probably because we've had such a shallow and sentimental view of love in the 20th century, especially in America, some Christians then, I think, reacted in the opposite extreme in having a very different definition. It, it's now common for preachers to say that love is not a feeling. And that the Greek word agape actually means a dispassionate commitment to the greatest or highest good of another. I have taught before on this at length, so let me simply remind you that a great many scholars and Greek dictionaries make sure to point out that this new definition of agape has no basis either in the Greek or in the Bible. Agape is, in fact, just like our English word love. It has a great wide range of uses. In fact, if you would like to look with me over one chapter to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 15, I will illustrate this to you as we find that very word agape describing the feelings of some very wicked false teachers about sordid gain. Where we read, 2 Peter 2, 15 that they have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Uh, Obviously, these wicked men did not have a dispassionate commitment to the highest good of unrighteous wages. Okay, No, they greedily coveted them, and the word for that greedy coveting is agape in its verbal form. Um, I could go on to give you many rather embarrassing uses of the word in the Bible to illustrate that, in fact, agape has a wide range of meaning. It is not a special kind of Christian love. It was a uh, word that was in use in the Greek language, uh, occurs many times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, especially, by the way, in the Song of Solomon, another very different kind of love. Christianity did introduce a wondrous new idea of love to the world, but the words that they used to describe it were the ordinary words already in use. And just as English speakers use the word love in a great variety of ways to say, I love pizza and I love my wife, but wise people won't use those in the same sentence, 
we understand that the word love has to take its meaning from context. Okay, so last week we studied the word Philadelphia, usually translated brotherly love. Some of you have uh, brotherly affection in your translation, a word which at that time was only used to describe the love of natural families until the apostles took up that word and then used it to describe the family of God. And, well, Philadelphia, the love of brothers, philos. You say, okay, that's another question here. Is is philos different from agape? Uh, Because I heard that philos is like the love of friendship and affection, and agape, agape is this dispassionate. No, actually, again, the biblical authors simply go back and forth between the various Greek words for love without any discernible change in meaning, just for interest's sake, just like I would change perhaps between talking about emotion and affection without any real difference in meaning. For instance, if you look at 1 Peter 1, verse 22, 1 Peter 1, 22, you'll, you'll read, uh, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, that's Philadelphia, by the way, love of the brethren, he then says, love one another fervently with a pure heart. That second one is agape, talking about exactly the same love. Um, Is philosophy affection and agape some kind of dispassionate love? Um, No, that very verse, as a matter of fact, says that we are to have fervent agape. It's a, agape is passionate in that passage. Fervent agape for one another. Um, well, do we not use agape then for brotherly love? No, as a matter of fact, in the very next chapter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17, honor all people, love the brotherhood. Love the brotherhood. And you might say, oh, clearly that must be Philadelphia. No, that's agape with the word for brothers. Again, you have to get it in context. The authors simply switch back and forth for variety's sake with no change in meaning because they're not writing a technical manual. They're writing letters. This is how we express ourselves. Or we could look at the next chapter on again, 1 Peter 3, verse 8. Back to Philadelphia here, and what a great description of it we find. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers, the verbal form of Philadelphia. Be tenderhearted, be courteous. And yet then the next chapter is back to agape, twice, uh, 4-8. And above all these things, have fervent agape love for one another. For love, agape, will cover a multitude of sins. And one more reference, by the way, to finish this off in the last line of his first letter, chapter 5, verse 14. Greet one another with a kiss of love. The kiss of love, philometai agapes. The, the, the verb to uh, kiss and the noun to kiss related to the uh, verb for love, in the first case. Okay, philematai agapes. So tongue-in-cheek, if we were to just try to do a word study in the Bible, we would find love is love. The sign is right. And beyond that, we have to read in context to see what does it mean. And yet... As we read the context, we are in no way disappointed. For the Bible tells us of 
so many things. Love's great origin, that love is of God. It describes and illustrates it in action. By this we know love, through Christ laid down his life for us. It teaches us how to have the right kind of love for God and, fa and family members, which is different, or for our fellow Christians or our neighbors or even our enemies. All those kinds of love are different. The love of enemies, by the way, might not include fervent affection or delight as it should in other cases. But Jesus says in the case of enemies, it involves doing good, speaking good, and desiring good for them. As Luke 6, Jesus says, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who spitefully use you, that you may be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the unthankful and evil. So the Lord defines his terms so that we know what love means in context and what it is to love people as they ought to be loved, indeed, as we would want to be loved in that situation, at the very least with sympathy and compassion. The Bible has much, much more to say on this important topic, but as we just considered last week, brotherly kindness or brotherly affection, as some of you have it, we are going to move on today now to the general virtue of love, the general virtue of love in 2 Peter, and consider how love, three things, is the fulfilling of our faith, the directing of our decisions, and the winning of our spiritual warfare. I tried to use alliteration's artful aid to help you kids remember at the dinner table what these three points are, fulfilling our faith, directing our decisions, and winning our spiritual warfare. And I have a few practical steps at the end because this is a passage on giving diligence for growth. Well, first, love. Love is fulfilling our faith. Love is fulfilling our faith. Now, over these last several weeks, we have gone from faith all the way to love. And even if we perhaps couldn't be sure that there was a definite order for all the words in between, the Bible definitely did take us and has taken us many times from faith to love on purpose. As Paul tells Timothy, for instance, that love must come from sincere faith. Or he writes to the Galatians, how in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but faith working through love. These are the bookends that we find uh, so many times in the Bible. Faith without love doesn't count anything before God, uh, as 1 Corinthians 13 tells us. And love without faith doesn't count either, for without faith it's impossible to please him. Love is now the final virtue on this list because it is the crown overall. Above all these things we prayed earlier from the apostle, put on love. And this is done in many places, the, the, the final, the ultimate virtue. For instance, uh, Paul's letter to the Colossians, a long list of virtues that says now over all these things, put on love or grant us love. The Bible says that the goal of the commandment, the, the end the, the focus of all these things is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, from a sincere faith. Love is the law and the prophets. Love is the great commandment and the second is like it. Love is the old commandment and the new commandment as Jesus has given. And love is the richness of our life 
because it was the richness of his. It's the fulfilling of our faith. It's what we need to put on overall for, brothers and sisters, love is the foundation of Christian character. It says we are to be rooted and grounded in love. Love is the great instrument of our faith, for it says that faith works by love. Love is the path on which we must walk, as we are told to walk in love. Love is the stitching that is to bind the hearts of our fellow Christians together with us in one, as our hearts are knit together in love. As we'll see at the end, love is our defense in our spiritual warfare, as the Bible tells us to put on that breastplate of love. And love is the goal of every commandment in the Bible, for it is the fulfillment of the law. As he wrote in his great chapter in love, 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, love is the measure of our Christian lives. Because no matter what else we might have, if we don't have it, we're utter failures. It's worthless. The apostle is the, the apostles in general are so concerned about emphasizing love, much more than we are in the modern church, I think. It is a major, major theme in their writings. They exhorted their readers to practice love, they, to model it to the church. They warned about loving the world more than Christ. They prayed for the church to grow in love overall. That faith, yes, is the root, but love is the fruit. Before we move on, let me just say there was a terrible attempt in the 20th century to separate faith from love. That is to say, people were redefining the Christian faith in a very unsupernatural way that was congenial to the modern spirit. But they said, don't worry, we're still going to have the same love. We can all be Christians together and love, even if we have a very different faith. It turned out to be an utter failure as the liberal theologians tried to change faith but keep love. It turns out if you lose the root, it doesn't take long before you lose the fruit. And if you make the Christian faith, whatever you want it to be, you soon find that Christian love is whatever you want it to be. And next thing you know, you're flying a rainbow flag outside your church to promote the very sexual immorality that Peter condemns in the second chapter, verse 6, how the Lord had to turn the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemning them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward live ungodly. You know, ideas have consequences. Faith is going to grow some kind of love. You better have the right faith if you want to have the right love. It's only true faith that will produce true love that we are learning to enjoy. And so, point one, I hope I haven't labored it too long, that love is the fulfilling of our faith. And we need them both. Second, love is directing our decisions. Love is directing our decisions. Well, love, in one form or one verbal form or another, keeps showing up. In fact, it's at, least, it's at least once in every one of Peter's chapters in both of his letters. He's never far from that subject. 
because we simply can't make any progress as Christians without love. He wants us to abound and grow in all these things, uh, verse 8, so that we will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is, again, supremely true about love. It must be the motivation of all of our action and direct our every decision. Hence, then, my second point to you. Love is directing our decisions. There is this commitment of the will to love that must be there in action and affection to direct all of our activities. Whatever we do without love is worthless both to God and to us. Did you know that? Paul writes in his great love chapter that a man may have the most amazing spiritual gifts. He might be fluent in the tongue of men and angels, the tongues of men and angels, I should say. He may have the deepest spiritual knowledge. He may be able to prophesy everything to come and to reveal all mysteries and all knowledge. He may have mountain-moving faith, and everywhere he goes, miracles follow. He may be heroically sacrificial to the point of giving everything to the poor and surrendering even his body to be burned for Christ. I mean, somebody that had all that, we would think would be rather high on the spiritual maturity meter, no? If you had all that? Paul says in every case, without love, those things mean absolutely nothing. Uh, Somebody's tongues are just so many clanging cymbals, noise and nothing more. All that knowledge and understanding of mysteries and high-octane faith can never compensate for the lack of love because if your spirituality isn't motivated by love, then it is all coming from spiritual pride or selfishness or some other very unworthy motive. God cares as much about why we do something as what we do. Do you understand why? All right, I I came across a letter uh, that illustrates the importance of motive, written by a young woman who's very much regretting that she had ended her engagement with her fiancé, and she's trying to make it right. She writes, Dearest Jimmy, no words could ever express the great unhappiness I've felt since breaking our engagement. Please say you'll take me back. No one could ever take your place in my heart, so please forgive me. I love you. I love you. I love you. Yours forever, Marie. P.S. And congratulations on winning the state lottery. (laughs) The importance of motive. Without love, we're like clanging cymbals, all noise, nothing. Um, We become like Pharisees who might tithe even mint and rue and every herb, while they neglect justice and the love of God, Jesus says. External religious performances can insidiously come to replace true inner faith and heartfelt love. Commenting on that church at Ephesus, we read in Revelation 2 that was really had it all together in so many ways, was working hard, bravely standing for the truth, doing all things that are right, couldn't abide evil men, all those things doing all the right things, but they'd lost their first love. And and one writer says, their their love for Christ and for one another had once motivated all that they did. It brought joy, creativity, 
freshness, spontaneity and energy to their life and work. But now their energy source was depleted. Their work had become mundane, mechanical and routine. And their lives, the picture of self-satisfaction. Instead of love abounding, it had been lacking. Instead of being motivated by love from the heart, their works lacked the energy that sprang from their former love and in some cases vanished. And the church, you know, as another one wrote, might still proclaim the truth while no longer passionately loving him who is the truth. Still performing good deeds, but no longer good in motive, out of love and brotherhood and compassion. Still preserving the truth and witnessing courageously and forgetting that love is the great witness and final apologetic to the truth. It is not so much that genuine virtues squeeze love out, but that no amount of other virtue, no amount of good works or wisdom or discernment and church discipline and patient endurance and hardship and hatred of sin in disciplined doctrine or anything else could make up for lovelessness. Positively speaking, Hudson Taylor, founder of the China, China Inland Mission, said, you know, if money could motivate the merchants of England to cross life-threatening oceans and enter the interior of China at great personal risk of loss of life, then could not the love of Christ motivate missionaries to do the same for the sake of the gospel? It was love that motivated Martin Lloyd-Jones to leave his prestigious medical career and to enter the ministry. As we read in his biography, he came to see the love of God expressed in the death of Christ in a way which overwhelmed him so that he simply had to become a minister of his love. Love must direct your every decision. It calls you beyond the borders of your own wants and needs and feelings. Love makes you willing to invest time, energy, money, resources, personal ability, and gifts for the good of others. Love makes you want to serve, to wait, to give, to suffer, to forgive, to persevere in all those things. Love makes you, love makes you be silent when you want to speak. And love makes you speak when you would much prefer to be silent. Love leads you to act when you would really like to wait, and it leads you to wait when you would really like to act. Love, again and again, is that which is to call you from your instincts and your comfort toward something very American, personal sacrifice, selflessly laying down our lives for others as Christ has done for us. Love is always considering the good of another. It's motivated by the interest of others. It gets excited at the prospect of lifting burdens and meeting needs. Love suffers when the loved one suffers. And love rejoices when the loved one rejoices. It has to be there in everything. I ask you, is your love growing? Or is it stagnating or shrinking? It's a, it's a tall order. But love is the greatest power in the human heart. 
It's the sustaining energy that will enable us to make countless difficult decisions and endure many difficulties. It must be the great motivation for all things, including serving others for Christ's sake. Point two, love is directing our decisions in such a way. Well, all right, Uh, it's fulfilling our faith. It's directing our decisions. Third, and uh, I hope uh, interestingly to you today, love is winning our spiritual warfare. We all like winning. Some of you watched the game yesterday, I see, okay. We all like winning. I read an article a while back that said, love is spiritual warfare. I immediately thought, I don't know about that. All right, let me read on, and it convinced me. It said, warfare is waged when students don't play into the drama at school or in youth ministry for love's sake, when their love keeps no record of wrong. Warfare is waged when women refuse to spread a bad report about someone who is insensitive. Again, their love is patient and kind. Warfare is waged When men rise up and fight injustice in love, they see the plight of the fatherless and become a father to them in the footsteps of their loving Heavenly Father. And and you see, it goes on in this line. For for love, the Apostle said, is the great breastplate and the armor of God. And for good reason. Love is spiritual warfare in that sense. And I, I think that we who have bought into a more sentimental Americanized view of love need to hear what love sounds like at war. What love sounds like at war. For in this very letter, particularly chapter 2, Peter is fighting for the eternal life of his beloved readers against those threatening to lead them into immorality and destruction. Chapter 2, verse 14. Those men having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, they have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. Do you think this is a loving letter? I do. It's love at war. Peter would have probably preferred not to write such things and to have a more positive letter. Love delights in positive letters. But chapter 2 is love at war. Listen to what fighting love sounds like. Chapter 2, verse 18. For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error, while they promise them liberty. They themselves are slaves of corruption by whom a person is overcome, and by him also he is brought into bondage. Rather contemporary, I think. We must avoid an overly sentimental approach to love. Love is winning spiritual warfare. Jesus perfectly loved his neighbor as himself. He loved his enemies. And when those enemies were turning the temple into a house of thieves, he drove them away with a stinging rebuke. When the Pharisees in the synagogue got angry that Jesus was about to heal a man with a withered hand, 
on the Sabbath, we read in Mark 3 that Jesus, quote, looked around at them with anger, being grieved at the hardness of their heart. Did you know that love gets angry? And why was he so angry? Because he loves so much. Because there's no contradiction there. And we know little of true Christianity if we do not feel a passionate concern about the, law, the souls of the ungodly. Like Paul who said, I have great heaviness and continual sorrow of heart for my brethren who have turned away from Christ. If the Lord himself felt so tenderly about wicked people, if his disciples felt the same, ought we not to feel likewise? And love forces us to think through what we would do and how we would feel and what we would want if we were in the same situation as them. Now, positively speaking, love is closely tied to the advance of our mission in the world. As Jesus says, by this will all men know that you are my disciples if, help me out, you have love for one another. You know, the Hindus suspected that Indian missionary, Amy Carmichael, must have been using some mysterious powder that drugged their children and made them long to be near her. You know what her drug was? It was love, pure and simple. What a, what a tremendous impact love has for the advance of our spiritual warfare. You know, I was reading about a Christian woman who survived the genocide of Rwanda a few years ago, which we heard about in our missions conference. This woman's only son was killed, and this grieving Christian mother was frankly consumed with anger and bitterness, and, and she constantly prayed, Oh God, reveal my son's killer. Because this was tribe on tribe. This was, this was a lot of local violence. But then one night she had this unusual dream. She said that she was going to heaven. And there was one complication. In order to get to heaven, she had to pass through a certain house. So she walked down the street and entered through the neighbor's front door and had to go through its rooms and then exit through the back door to get to heaven. And, and in the dream, she asked God, Who, whose house this was? And he told her, this was the house of your son's killer. It literally passed, the way to heaven passed through the house of her enemy. And she awoke, and the next day she couldn't get that dream out of her mind and the day after that, there was a knock at the door. And she opened it, and there stood a young man about her son's age. And he hesitated. But he said, I am the one who killed your son. Since that day, I have had no life, no peace. So here I am. I am placing my life in your hands. Kill me. I'm dead already. Throw me in jail. I'm in prison already. Torture me. I am in torment already. Do with me as you wish. And the woman had prayed and prayed for just such a day. And now that it arrived, she found to her surprise that she did not want to kill him or throw him in jail or, or torture him. In that moment of surprise reckoning, she found she only wanted one thing, a son. And so she said, I ask this of you. Come into my house and live with me and eat the food I would have prepared for my son, and wear the clothes I would have made for my son, become the son I lost. And so he did, and grew into a godly young man, 
And I thought, what a crazy story. And then I thought, what an astonishing story because this woman has only done what God has done for us. Making sons and daughters out of bitter enemies. Blessing and loving the very ones who are responsible for the death of his son. What a power love is in our spiritual warfare to do the most unusual things. Love is spiritual warfare. On the one hand, that means, as he writes in his first letter, love will cover a multitude of sins. But as we've seen also, when someone is leading our beloved into sin, that same love raises all the passion within us to deliver our beloved. It covers a multitude of sins, and it raises a passion to deliver the beloved. Love is winning our spiritual warfare, point three. And if you do these things, writes Peter, then you will never stumble, soldier of Christ. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Verses 10 and 11. So now, as we've seen in our series, Peter has strongly emphasized not just these virtues, but specifically our need to give all diligence to grow in in love and all these other virtues. And so, to be practical... I want quickly to give you four ways in which you might yourself be diligent to grow in love. First, not unsurprisingly, to study God's Word, especially about love. This is where we must reprogram our modern minds. I read about one minister who gives this assignment to couples on their wedding day. He tells them to take the first 15 weeks of their marriage and to study the 15 descriptions of love in 1 Corinthians 13 dedicating one week to each description, to memorize, to study, to meditate upon, to discuss with one another, conscientiously to apply for the week that love is patient or long-suffering. And then the next week, that love is kind and so forth. And it does not envy, again, in this day of counterfeit love, as I began, in this day of profound confusion of, in fact, self-love, We need God's Word to renew our minds. We need to give ourselves diligently to it. Secondly, praying to God, and especially for love. Praying to God, and especially for love. We can think of Paul's many prayers about the churches that he writes, for their love for one another, that it would abound, that they would be able to grasp the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that passes knowledge, why there's just a great variety of love prayers to help us. Because, of course, God must be the teacher of love for us. And God is the best teacher. And it is the work of the Holy Spirit to bear his fruit of love in us. And so we must, therefore, appeal to the author and source. And how much more will he give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? We need to ask. Pray to God, especially for love. Thirdly, we need to meet up with each other especially to stir up love. We need to meet with each other, especially to stir up love. You know the verse I'm referring to, perhaps? And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. We can be a great help to each other 
when we're together, but we do tend to grow cold apart. Paul, therefore, commends Timothy. You, ha- you know and have followed my example of love. Now, you are to go be an example of love to others. Go meet with one another to stir up love. We, we can't develop, certainly, Christian love for others merely sitting at home on the couch, unless there's somebody on the couch with us. Love requires an object, and we must take the initiative. As one man wrote, my business is to love others, not to seek that others love me. So, study, pray, meet together. Fourth, do good works, especially to demonstrate love. Do good works, especially to demonstrate love. It's often much easier to act your way into a feeling than feel your way into an action. You start doing what you ought to do, and then you find that the feelings have come along after that obedience of faith. We must become practitioners of love, not just theorists. As John writes, whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts his heart up from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My children, let's not love in word or tongue, but in deed and in truth. And the more that we do such love, the more that we will be able to feel such love. As I said at the beginning, love embraces both affection and action. So thank you for your patience in going through this mighty subject in a short time. Obviously so much more than I could say. But it is the great commandment, after all, and God couldn't have given us a greater one. Because, frankly, there is nothing more right, nothing more good, nothing more joyful and satisfying than that you should learn to keep it, than for you to grow in love. In our fallen nature, it's a constant fight that we must give all diligence to win. It's not nearly as natural to us as it one day will be, but in in Christ, we still find it every bit as delightful, as wonderful, and as enjoyable as God intended. As I said in the beginning, everyone in the world seems to want love, at least if the songs are any indication, and yet real love remains increasingly scarce in our world. And that's because, of course, self-love and rebellion against God runs so very deep in our fallen race. And for this reason, to reclaim us, God's love has come down to us in Jesus. By this we know love, for he has laid down his life for us. So, for all this talk about love, I I must ask you, do you know that love? Real love? That real, mighty, life-giving, rescuing, redeeming, restoring Love, as we sang earlier, love to the loveless shown that we might lovely be. If not, my friends, you need to do what this text says. You need to add some love. You need to begin with faith, and you'll find that you end with love, more love than you could possibly imagine. A greater power, a greater reason to love than you will be able to live out in a thousand lifetimes. And what is heaven, wrote Edwards, but a world of love. And I would love to pray with you after the service 
that you might begin to know such love, both now and forever. And what a great religion. With, with such reasons and powers, divine powers. No ancient or modern philosopher from Socrates to Singer ever thought about such far-reaching ideas about love. No political figure from Caesar to Churchill ever made such demands upon his followers to love. No religious teacher from Buddha to Confucius ever commanded his followers to love one another as he has loved them and gave his life for them. No system of theology or philosophy says anywhere near as much about the divine motivation for love or makes such demands for love as the one who loved us and gave himself for us. It is what we most desire. It is what we most need. In it, we find our supreme delight in God. In it, we find we bring the greatest glory to God. Love is all you need. True love. This love is the true love indeed. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, of all the truths that you have revealed to yourself, we stagger at this marvelous grace of love, of which we feel that even after such a study, we know so little. We have received so much, and yet we have known so little in our lives, in our hearts, in our relationships, and especially to the world and to our enemies. Oh, Lord, deliver us from such lovelessness. It is the great shadow over our lives, greater than any other sin. Open our eyes to your great love that we might arise and follow in your steps. This love is too great for mortal men, so we pray that by your own spirit, the spirit of Christ, that you would send such love into our hearts to be born as the fruit of your wondrous love. And as we enjoy it, may it shine forth in the darkness. And we pray, O King of love, lead on. Lead on, O King eternal. We pray it.